welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Let's do it. Okay, we're recording. Drew, what's up, you legend? Welcome to the Bro Nouveau podcast. Good morning, Thomas. How are you doing this morning? <laughs> I am good, man. The sun is yet to rise here in San Francisco, so we're we're doing it. How are you? Beautiful. You look like look like you're in paradise there. I am. I actually just watched the sunrise in uh, Oaxaca, Mexico. It was stunning. That's awesome, dude. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, Living the awesome, life man. down here. Yeah, man. So you and I have been, you've been one of my best friends for a super long time. And when I started this podcast, I immediately had you on the mind as a great guest because of your life experiences, your ability to communicate. And I think you are very good at relaying kind of tough to tough topics, tough conversations, and making them accessible to people. So thank you for being here. And I wanted to start with a well, little bit of background. Thank you for that compliment, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So who who is Drew? You know, What about yourself do you want to share? What kind of context do you want to provide for, for folks listening? That is a loaded question. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm from... <laughs> From the South Jersey area, um, went to high school with Tom, obviously at St. Jude's Prep. Um, then, you know, traveled a bit for university, starting in San Francisco and then back to Philadelphia. Um, and I moved back to Philly where intentionally to start kind of my uh, my career very young. I was like very career driven at 18. And I was like, I don't want to just do college. I want to start my career. Um, which I kick myself now because I really wish I just sat back and relaxed and enjoyed those years. Um, but so when I moved back to Philly, I started, uh, you know, really doing professional public speaking and public advocacy nationally, um, starting at 19. And I ran that track for about six or seven years, um, you know, all in the nonprofit sector. And, uh, you know, from that time, I kind of realized I, I love the nonprofit space and I also love fundraising. And so I took those experiences and have been doing a lot of nonprofit consulting ever since. Um, so I wear a bunch of different hats, but, uh, you know, I, I love being a part of the, the mission driven work that is being done to improve our communities. Um, and I think we all need to jump in and help in any way that we can. Um, so I know that's a, a circuitous answer, but that is kind of drew in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, and I now, nice. you know, uh, my, my fiance and I, Gordon, uh, fortunate enough that we wrote, uh, both work remotely. Um, our housing situation kind of fell through and, uh, you know, we were like, where do we want to live? And, uh, we made a short list of those places. Uh, it was like Raleigh, North Carolina, like Denver, San Francisco, <laughs> and then we were like, we're Mexico. Um, so we have been in Mexico for just over a month now and uh, plan on staying here down down here for the foreseeable future. Awesome, man. Good for you. We always talk about getting out of Philly, and so it's hard. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like, like a, getting a blister out of your foot. You know, it's yeah. like 
Hurt, hurts more to do than, yeah. than the blister itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Awesome, man. Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's funny to hear you reflect back on those years now because I remember, you know, you were speaking, you were making money, you know, you were cash rich and you were so busy and productive and, you know, had all these what I perceive to be good things going on. So it's interesting to hear you look back on that. But the crux of your journey, I would say, of advocacy started with a speech at our high school. So those who have been listening the whole time will remember that the high school of St. Joseph's Prep we went to is is making great strides with um, being a more inclusive space. But certainly it's a, it's a Catholic, um, all-boys high school, uh, expensive to get into, the high, high barrier to entry, um, not a ton of representation among other people than rich suburban white people. And so that's changing, but that's the context. And at the time you got up during our junior year, my jun- your junior year, I think my sophomore year of high school, and you gave this speech. And that was a pretty seminal moment for the lives of a lot of people in that room, I think, especially yours. So I think that's a great place to start. What was the you know context for that speech and how, how did it how did it impact your life as well? Certainly. Um, so going, you know, in addition to the lack of representation, um, I think being at a, a, what we perceived as like a prestigious high school that you got accepted into, uh, there was like this pressure ex- externally and internally that like you had to be on this path for success. Um, and there wasn't really a, any representation of people that weren't on that path and people that you know, had, you know, obstacles in their life, you know, we didn't really talk about them openly. Again, it was an all boys environment. Um, you know, we all wear, wore our suit coat and tie every day to school. Like it looked very nice. Um, but nobody really revealed necessarily, nor did I self reveal what was underneath. Um, and for me, what was underneath was I, you know, seriously struggled with, uh, my mental health from, uh, you know, a very young age. Um, and it only it was exacerbated throughout high school. Um, so, you know, I always like look back. I was like, you know, I would walk this, the halls every day and I looked just like everybody else. I had the suit coat and tie that matched everybody's, but like I would be limping down the hallway because I had cuts on my leg. And I remember just feeling like if anybody knew the reality of this, that I would be looked at differently and judged. Um, so I just kept it secret. Um, and I kept it secret for a very long time. Um, until my sophomore year, I was, um, you know, I was hospitalized for over a month, uh, for a suicide attempt on New Year's Eve. Um, and obviously when you're out of school for over a month, kids start wondering, like, where are you? <laughs> um, you know, this isn't like the flu. Uh, and I remember telling people that you know, my grandmother died or my grandfather died, both of whom were like still alive. Um, <laughs> I told them that I had food poisoning, that I had the stomach virus because I knew that like, even though it sounded crazy to be gone for that long, that it was more acceptable to say some kind of physical illness or death than it was to say, actually, I was in a psychiatric hospital for attempting suicide on New Year's Eve. Um, And so 
I like when I came back from the hospital, I remember coming back into school and just being like, oh, my God, I have this this entire like this new book bag on of all of this stuff that just happened to me and nobody knows about it and nobody can yes. know about it. Um, except for faculty. I mean, fortunately, the faculty at the school was incredible. My guidance counselors, my, the principals, everybody was, uh, you know, unbelievable um, for what you could ask for in terms of support from a, an education academic standpoint. Um, or just like a, from what you could expect from your school. From the administration. Uh, exactly. Um, and so kind of fast forward, you know, obviously I, through, you know, the recovery process, I was going to intensive therapy four days a week. I was doing cognitive behavioral therapy, I was taking medication. I had finally understood that I had a diagnosed mental health issue and that I needed treatment. But with that treatment that I would be able to flourish and succeed and live a normal and healthy life, just like all of my other peers are. Um, and so like junior year, I remember I just, I, I was the, a completely different kid socially. Like I finally was confident. Um, like I started working at a restaurant in Philly called Sabrina's, which was like the famous restaurant. And so like I worked in this <laughs> restaurant atmosphere where I gave all of this confidence for socializing, getting to know people. And I would wear a prep shirt because people would be alumni and they would start talking to you. And so by junior year, I was like this completely opposite kid. I was friends with everybody, but like nobody knew where Drew had come from or what Drew had gone through. It was just like Drew was a really fun kid to be around and very personable. Um, and that's when I started to feel this burden of like, I started, you know, smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. I started definitely binge drinking heavily because I felt like I, that was the only, I could grasp some kind of normality with people around these certain things, but I felt so weighed down by the, the concept or the idea of opening up about this. Um, you know, and that was, you know, into junior year when I had heard um, that one of the teachers who worked at the prep at the time started this event called Breaking the Waves, which was um, a, an event that the swim team, swim team led. Uh, and it was because the swim coach had uh, lost his roommate to suicide. And so the, the team would swim through the night with um, you know, the, the full team, and I think even like some of the other schools would join in and they would raise awareness for suicide prevention and raise money for it. Um, it's awesome. I mean, it really is such a, a, an incredible concept. And it was on that year that they decided that they really wanted to have a student voice to, to be like support this initiative. Um, it was really bold of the administration to, to want that. Um, and it was even bolder of them to allow uh, a junior who had just kind of gone through, you know, an attempt and then treatment. And I was like, I want to talk about it. Like, I just, I don't want to keep this inside anymore. I want to be open and honest about who I am. Yeah, man, there's so much there. Also, I just want to point out your self-awareness looking back because one of the things I try to promote in the show is being aware of our influences and 
how it affects us today. So yeah, just throughout that whole narrative, you know, being aware of the things that happened to you, how it influenced you and, you know, even the thing of like developing social skills and where, where that happened. Like that's just a really cool side tangent. Yeah. I wanted to share. No, no, I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it's, well, because for me, that was what was relatable. You know, it was what that was what I could connect with people on like a a, a, sh- a shallow level. It wasn't great, um, but I was like, <laughs> well, I'm I'm closeted gay, and I'm closeted, you know, having gone through all of my mental health issues. So, like, yeah. other than that, I don't have a ton to connect with these people on, or so I didn't think. Um, mm-hmm. And that completely changed the day that I gave that speech. Um, cause that changed my experience at the prep from then on. But, uh, like I still will hear from kids, you know, years later of what that presentation did for them. Um, and that was the realization that, oh my God, every single kid in this auditorium has a story. Every single one of us has life experiences that has brought us to where we are today that have impacted us one way or the other, negatively or positively. And we're all living with that. And we're all coping with that each and every single day. And so the more vulnerable you can be about it, and the more open and honest you can be about it, then you realize that you're not in this journey alone, that there are so many people right alongside you that are walking this journey with you. Totally. Um, I'll I'll never forget that image of you up on that, little stage in the gym with a thousand, you know, 13 to 18 year old boys and maybe like a hundred staff. Mm-hmm. all looking at you with your floppy curly hair. I had a big, <laughs> I had a massive Afro and I had these baby blue Sperry's on um, because, I, <laughs> because I slept at my brother's the night before in Philly because I knew that I wouldn't be able to sleep before, but I also didn't have clothes. So I had like these baby blue Sperry's and then I had this like bright red sweater and an Afro. It was not like a, a, you know, a prepared look. And I certainly at that time was not a speaker. I mean, I, I had a six page document that I went up to the stage on and I, I read from it because I was so scared. Um, yeah. Like it, even today, like I think about it and I was just like a petrified little kid that was just like, I need to throw this up. Um, so I, I'm forever grateful that I did because it was just the most monumental experience of my life. And that's why I'm indebted to the prep for like allowing that because that's, that was bold of them. Um, and just for the, every single kid in that community, I remember like, you know, it wasn't just like a, the standing ovation. It was like leaving the auditorium. They had like a reception area for our family who visited. Um, and like every single kid just was like patting me on the back. And it just like kept going. And then we would go to our classes and like class discussion was just like changed for the day. And it was like, all right, let's, you know, talk about mental health. Um so it's, it was just like a, an eye-opening experience of like, oh my God, like this, this happened and it was relevant to people and it meant something. And now yep. it's like, we want to continue this conversation, which was really 
awesome to see. Super awesome. Yeah, that's a great perspective looking back. It was Gomez, right? Principal Gomez. Dr. Gomez was the, Gomez. Uh, what a legend. Yeah. I love I mean, that guy. Yeah, side change. But the fact that he left the prep to go to a school to serve more kids in need yep. or, you know, needing or more in line with the mission, rather, of Jesuit education yep. is so cool. Okay, so this this happens, and then you now have this platform socially, right? You know, smaller scale, it's the immediate environment of the school. But the thing about that school is it's very connected. And that with your natural charisma, you're leaning into your, I think, your gay identity, if I'm going to armchair expert mm-hmm. psychologist, mm-hmm. In, in the sense that you're able to make really good connections with both uh, guys and girls and be, you know, that like safe guy for a lot of girls too. And so yeah. your, your social network is, is, is building and you end up working for a mental health organization as a speaker. So this organization employs a roster of speakers, young, young people like yourselves, mm-hmm. like yourself at the time who had a story to tell and they serve as advocates, advocates for mental health for students, teachers, and parents. So what was that experience like at that point? Cause now you're 18 and yeah. you're on the Northeastern circuit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I, I remember I was at a, uh, it was Marion Mercy, which is our like sister high school. And they did like a, a thing called speak up where students and parents would get together in breakup groups, not with their own kid, but so that they could hear from student perspectives about different topics. And so obviously I was in the mental health group shared my experience a little bit and I got chased down the hallway by this woman and she she was like, was completely out of breath. And she was like, I know I sound crazy, but have you ever considered public speaking before? I'm a public professional public speaking coach and you would be perfect. And I was like, I'm still in high school. I have no idea what you're talking about, but (laughs) let's, you know, let's meet. And, you know, so then I began, you know, meeting with, uh, you know, her name's Trish, still a great friend of mine, um, on a weekly or biweekly basis to turn, you know, what was just my, my story, my gut-wrenching story into a presentation that could be delivered to students of all different ages um, in an educational way that wasn't just like, here's my story, um, in a way that had, you know, takeaways and deliverables for them. And, uh, and we worked so diligently, you know, over the years together so that I had, you know, a a presentation for anything where if it was an hour and a half, I could do it. If it was 30 minutes, I could do it. If it was five minutes, sure. A minute elevator pitch, got it. And so, you know, working with her, it was learning how, regardless of the soundbite or the, the amount of time that I had, it was bringing in the necessary components uh, and condensing that into something that was, um, you know, powerful and, you know, had it had impact. Um, and so I'll never forget my first speech as a like professionally trained speaker. I was still in high school. Uh, it was spring. <laughs> I, I don't even know if I could drive yet. So, yeah, I delivered that first presentation in the spring of my senior year. Then freshman year of college comes, I got the inspiration. I wanted to go to San Francisco for the year or for college. Um, I ended up staying for the year, uh, deciding again, I was ready to start my career. I, I was hungry for this and I was motivated. 
So I flew back, I transferred to Drexel and like, I, I recognized I had this ability, I had the platform and I had the, what it took and I was willing to run with it. And so I came back, met with, um, you know, Trish and that's when the bookings grew from once a month to, to five times a month to sometimes every day of the month. Well, maybe not every day of the month, but I would sometimes have up to 20 presentations in a week. I would do, you know, five health classes a day, five days in a row, so 25 presentations. Um, some days I would fly up to Boston. I would speak at one school in the morning, then get a lift to another school in the afternoon, and then speak to a parent group at night, and then take a lift to the airport and fly down to Richmond to be there in the morning for a morning presentation down there. Um, I mean, it grew to, you know, again, delivering, by the end of it, it was up to 200 to 250 presentations over the course of the school year. So, you know, I was, I was running the circuit. Um, you know, and these were anywhere from middle school, like sixth, seventh, eighth grade to high school, university and, you know, parents. And then also like a lot of, uh, you know, we did faculty trainings and, um, you know, trainings with like the American uh, Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So it was just kind of everybody that we were, you know, I was getting incredible job. So. And eventually you got burned out on that a little bit. And also at the same time, you know, it's not like this uh, career path was also totally solving your own ongoing mental health maintenance, right? Like it does, it's unfortunately there's no cure all. (laughs) No. And when you're exactly. And in addition to the, I think where it got really, overwhelming for me was not only was I doing 200 presentations a year, I was also the director of development. So I was in charge of, you know, I I built the celebration of life with, you know, Mike and I started it in our apartment when he was 20, I was 21. And I remember the night before having so much anxiety uh, and fear of failure. And there was certainly a lot of pressure, you know, from the, you know, other people, to, to make sure that this was a successful event. Meanwhile, I was still in college and I was still speaking 200 times a year. I was just coming back from Boston and I'm like, okay, now I got to throw together my first gala. Like I've never done this before. <laughs> you know, I certainly did, a, did a fantastic job. It grew exponentially and, you know, it was a phenomenally successful fundraising initiative, but doing a whole, you know, a whole development and fundraising uh, campaign in addition to gut-wrenching presentations every day. All I was talking about literally all day was suicide and my attempts and reliving my entire yeah. past. Right. Yeah. So as, that's, as, that's... as much as I'm like trying to like you know, foster and improve relationships for the future. I'm still talking about like my, the way that my parents relationship was when I was a child. And it's like, there's got to come a point where I have to, I have to set a lot, a boundary for myself and say, I want to, I, 
as much as I love this, this is no longer beneficial to me. And because of that, it is not beneficial or helpful to others. To the you audience, know, if, yeah. I always, I always said to myself, if there became a day that I started speaking just for the paycheck, that I wouldn't do it anymore. There are plenty of speakers that charge five to $10,000 for their presentations, and they've been doing it for 20 years. And it's like, you know, there is certainly a market where you can make that your career path, but it becomes really easy to just see right through it because it's not authentic. And for me, authenticity was the number one thing. And, you know, once that's not there, it's, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Totally. Well, awesome, man. Dude, thanks for uh, walking us through that. I think that's a really cool, just a great, really cool experience for a young person looking back. And I also want to drive the the chat towards, I guess, realistic or helpful information for someone listening. So the ethos of the Bronova podcast is to model healthy communication for men and give them encouragement and modeling that differs from the traditional narrative of what a man is supposed to be. So for you, what are some of the ways you think that anyone, but especially a man, can kind of step out of that mold and to be a bit more expressive and, and not put as much weight on the perceptions of others? It's a scary thing, but really spending time with yourself and your thoughts and getting to know, like, who, who you really are and what you really value and what is important to you. Like I always found, I've always done it uh, like as hectic as my speaking years were, I would always try to take a trip off the grid or just like backpack in Puerto Rico or backpack through Europe. Um, Cause I found that like when I cut everything off and just, it was just me, my thoughts and like the few belongings that I had, um, that then I could identify who it, who it is that I really am and what it is that I really want. Um, and I think that so often we're, we're just like in this warp of like everybody that we know and everybody that we've been around and that we've been exposed to. And now we're all just kind of watching each other and like, Oh, <laughs> this person got a new job. This person got a promotion. Woohoo, woohoo. And you're like, all this is like complete bullshit. Like none of us real, like it, this does not matter at all. Um, I think for me, even taking a step back from like speaking and my, like to be like, I don't necessarily know what it is that I want right now, but I know that this is not healthy and that this is not working for me. And it's having that awareness of yourself to just say, I got to take time and take care of myself before any job, before any professional development, any personal, whatever, like you can only take care of yourself. I would, would always use the analogy. Like, obviously if you're on the airplane and the air mask deploys, you know, put the mask around yourself before you put it around the person next to you. Like it is all about self care and and, and not just in like a glorified sense of like, oh, I go to soul cycle self-care. It's like, <laughs> oh, I, I take time intentionally out of my days and out of my hours to focus on myself. Um, 
And that might just be going on a walk. That might just be, you know, reading for a few minutes, but being very intentional about dedicating time for you. Totally. What are some of the pitfalls you've seen in guys who maybe do the prescribed path of college work career, and then they have a stark downfall? Cause I know you've seen that story play out a bunch in people our age, older people. So what are some of the yeah. like warning signs or things to avoid from, from maybe like a very career focused person, for example, Somebody that attaches their value and their worth and their happiness to those career things. Like that is to me, great. You you might make a hundred thousand dollars, but like when was the last time you saw your grandparents or like saw your parents or like, you know, had a, a nice check-in with someone, it, it, you know, like it, if you're really putting all your eggs in your career basket, like, that just sets for, you know, a certain track, which like, again, being on the speaking circuit, I would get called into these elite boarding schools up in the Northeast because, you know, this high net worth family who had an estate, um, you know, their son went missing on the property and they were, you know, completed suicide. And, and so what you realize from that is in this life of perfection that they have tried to achieve where we have not just a home, we have an estate. We, you know, we don't just fly, we fly private. We don't just send our kids to school, we send them to the best of the best. And we were so focused on all of those things that we completely neglected our child's wellness, like our child and what actually matters to them. And now they're dead. You know, and then I would get, we would get caught in and it's trying to have to pick up those pieces and explain to, you know, to, the, the peers friends of how this could happen. And, you know, and it's like, the problem is it was, I've seen it too, 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 too many times. And it's like, this is a vicious cycle that we are in as a society of like success is something like a monetary figure and it looks a certain way. And, um, and there's going to be a point that you hit where you're like, okay, I've got it. I'm good. Yeah. And it's unfortunately this like unfulfilling, never like never ending pit that you just keep digging for more. Well said. Another area that a lot of resistance is shown to is the therapeutic process and sitting down with someone who's a professional who has the skill set to help anyone, even if they don't have a severe mental health situation. Yeah. So what are some of the, actually, I think a better question would be, what is the therapeutic process like for someone who has never been exposed to it or, or is skeptical of it? Like, what is it like to go yeah. to therapy? So, so I, I would, I always get asked like, where you know, would always get asked, when do I go for help? Like, what is the right time to, to seek out professional help. Um, and again, I'm a very visual analogy person. And like, I always use this example of like, if you were in this little fishing boat, like a little 12 foot <laughs> fishing boat and, and there's a crack at the bottom of the boat, are you going to sit and watch the water just slowly seep into the boat? 
until you know you're knee deep in the water and, and the boat's sinking. No, you're, what most people would do is they would <laughs> the second that they see that water is seeping in, they would claw, fix the crack and they would yeah. they would address it early. Row it to they shore. would prevent it. They would do it preventatively yeah. rather than you know it's all it's all about like being proactive instead of reactive. Like you do not want to be going to therapy when you are completely underwater. Your boat is full of all of this shit happening in your life. And now you're literally just trying to like barrel it out. Like that is never a good way of, you know, that's the same thing of like just waiting until you have a heart attack to then go to the doctor, you know, and it's like (laughs) there is proactive care so that you don't have to get to that point of crisis. The crisis may look different if it's a physical health issue or a mental health issue, but the reality is the same. Like if, if you don't acknowledge it and you don't treat it, um, you're not preventing it. Like you're just not acknowledging it and you're, you're making it even more susceptible for, for a crisis situation to occur. That's the first thing. In terms of going to a therapist, therapy is like dating. You know, like the first person you go on a date with usually isn't the person that you marry. Um, sometimes <laughs> not even the same sex is the person that you marry, right? Like, it, and, and it's different for everybody. You know, who I connect with is different than who you connect with. Um, and, you know, I've gone to several, several, several different therapists over the years because my needs changed and I needed a therapist that kind of aligned with those changes in my life. Um, you know, there were times that I went to a male therapist. That was the time that I was having a lot of challenges, you know, coping with the fact that my father wasn't the father figure that I needed and wanted. Um, you know, and, and that was a crucial time to have a, a male, uh, therapist, um, because he helped me to realize that I could identify male fatherly figures, you know, and, and that therapist is someone that I keep in touch with. Um, but then there were points in my life where I went to female therapists because I, I needed just a different connection. Um, so it, it, just because you go to the first one and it doesn't work, it doesn't fit, doesn't mean that you just stop. Um, and it's also not going to be like you're going to walk into therapy and 45 minutes later walk out and be like, I am a changed person. <laughs> like. This doesn't happen overnight at all. Like this is a this is a lifelong journey that we're on, and you know, and our therapists or our trusted adults are there with us all along the way. Um, and I say trusted adults because the the reality, the unfortunate reality, is that therapy is not cheap. Um, therapy is not covered under insurance. Like when my parents would give me shit about quitting a job because I wasn't going to have health insurance, I was like, guess what? The thing that I would, that I use it for the most isn't covered anyway. So I like, I don't care. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, if my, if my therapy was covered, absolutely. I may be a little more, uh, you know, determined to stay in, you know, in the job, but like, uh, if I'm paying for therapy out of pocket anyways, like what's the difference? I don't go to the dentist or doctor like multiple times a year anyways. So to me, it's just unfortunate that the thing that we all really need the most, especially coming out of dealing with COVID and, you know, the pandemic and the lingering mental health crisis that we all have, are aware of, 
that is happening, not just for our adolescents, but for our, like our even younger children or young adults, college students, like it, and adults and grandparents, like this has impacted everybody's mental health in some way, shape or form. Um, and so to, you know, we need some, some coping and somebody to talk to, um, you know, and that's where, you know, finding that therapist is so critical. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about therapy is there are so many different types of therapy. <laughs> you know, uh, it, for some people, going to talk therapy is perfect. That's all you need is every week or every couple of weeks just to check in. Great. There's also dialectical behavioral therapy. There's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's all of these different types of therapies that specialize, whether you're struggling with anxiety or depression or, or whatever it may be that you're, that you're struggling with. So the more that you can get in tune with what it is that you're experiencing, then you can actually proactively research people that meet the criteria of what you need. Um, like there's nothing better than being able to go to like psychologists today and like actually check the boxes of like, yes, I want someone that specializes with anxiety, depression, LGBTQ community that has experience with suicidal ideation and attempts. Like I, I could filter all of those things, you know, so being aware of like what it is that you're experiencing, you might not have the vocabulary for it, but um, just of like simply writing down some of your thoughts. And if you, oftentimes like these ruminating thoughts are very common thoughts for people that struggle with anxiety. We just think it's ourselves because we don't know that other people experience it. Awesome. One other, I think I'll one more, we have time for one more question and then we'll jump over to the, the three things game yeah. is around the, you know, definition of what does it mean to be a good man for you? Because the whole motivation behind this program when I started it was that I feel like there's a lack of diversity of modeling for men. And it's very siloed to there's one way to be. It's a traditional machismo maybe, or it's a focus on career. Mm -hmm. It's a stoicism. And I think our generation is doing a great job of evolving that compared to say our parents' generation. Absolutely. Cause the fact we're having this conversation, yeah. but for you, you know, when you think, when you define for yourself, when you sit down, look at your values and you think about what kind of man do I want to be in my community? What kind of man do I want to be in this world? What are the things that come to mind? Honest, genuine and loving and empathetic. Those are the biggest things for me. I empathy is, I think the, like a crux of, who I try to be and just understanding where people are coming from and what they've experienced. You can't necessarily walk in their shoes, but at least try to understand that they have different shoes. Right. Um, so I think, you know, the empathy and understanding um, and sh affection showing affection is something that is, I, I grew up in a household that it's a divorced household. So there wasn't any, um, and I think even just like among our male peers, like giving, embracing hugs, like we've always been big huggers, Tom, uh, you know, <laughs> like that is something that is not necessarily accepted, like widely yeah, yeah. done in, in the, you know, 
But like, for example, I don't hug my brother. We're not like huggers, but you and I have a, a deep connection and a deep like relationship where we talk about things, where we know about each other. And so when we see each other, we give each other a deep, like a big hug. So I, you know, I think um, even stuff like that, where it sounds really weird, but it's just kind of breaking down those barriers of like, what you're like, you know, what he's trying to hug me. It's like, no, you guys are two guys. You can hug, you can kiss on the lips for all you care. You know, like, um, yeah, nobody gives a shit. Yeah. 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 That's, that's true, man. I, I do that consciously in saying, I love you to my male friends. Cause that's one where I feel resistance and I grew up in a, a pretty affectionate loving environment, like big hugs from my dad, kissing the cheek, you know, saying I love you and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I find myself feeling that resistance. So I like push through intentionally. Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, I love you. You, have to, yeah. you know? And like, you need to hear that because it's real for me and yeah. I care about you. And I think when we talk about preventative mental health too, Hearing that mm-hmm. subconsciously, you know, knowing that my buddy has my back, he loves me, like he yeah. will be there for me when I need him is huge. Yeah. Exactly. And you have no idea, like, the, when you sent that text, what that person was going through on the other end. Who, for all you know, they could have been having intense suicidal thoughts. And you just saying, I love you and I am here for you is a preventative protective barrier because he now knows actually I may have thought that nobody would care. Clearly Tom cares. And so those are just like, like subconscious little things that to your, that make a massive impact over time. Um, And I think it's so critical because we are in an environment again, where, I mean, the suicide rates are, you know, it's the second and third leading cause of death for, you know, 10 to 30 year olds. And, and people know, need to hear that they are loved and that they are not alone. Um, and that they're, you're here for them. So, and you're modeling that with your friends so that they can then model it with their friends and their colleagues. And, you know, it's, it's not like you have to go around, like, you know, hugging everybody <laughs> on the street, but it's just yeah. letting people know, like, <laughs> Hey, I'm here and, and and I care about you. Yeah. I, I like to break down these kind of stigmas logically too. And for me, love is one of the most important human experiences. Philosophers, artists yeah. throughout millennium, there's a, there's a fascination with love. So if I really care about someone, regardless of their gender, am I going to let some faceless, maskless, abstract judgment from someone I don't know prevent me from expressing that love and experiencing the full range of human emotion? Fuck no. Why yeah. Why would I like, let... Why would I? Exactly. It's like... So I think maybe to the, the rational breakdown of these kind of uh, norms are helpful for people. So... Yeah. Awesome, man. We'll pivot over to Three Things Game. Um, I am going to... Later on, ask you to share some like resources, please. I'll, I'll text you or yeah. whatever. And so, be, anyone listening who needs help, just check the thumbnail or check the uh, episode timestamps and stuff, and we'll have uh, resources for you there. Okay, Drew, your birthday is February, springtime. 
right? Sorry? What month is your birthday in? I'm September. Fuck. Sorry. All right. Okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm up first. So I get a question because my birthday's sooner, and then uh, you have a different different question. Perfect. All right. Okay. Here's my question. What are three lessons my mother taught me? Hmm. I would say, number one, just to not take things too seriously. My mom has an awesome sense of humor, knows how to laugh at herself and laugh at life, which is, which is the best. Number two, I would say just like the embodiment of unconditional love, you know, and that's just such a special thing for a person. Absolutely. You know, especially as you get older, I realize people don't have that from parents. So that's just such a special yeah. thing I really uh, appreciate. And I would say number three, resilience and evolution. You know, we've, we've watched her go through a lot, evolve multiple times in that. career, personal life, socially. And yeah, she's a badass. And she is. Yeah. Mom, Love you, mom. Okay. <laughs> Here's your question. What are three things you've learned from being lost? Who? Um, to embrace being lost. To enjoy and embrace the process of being lost. Like there is no like roadmap and there is no destination point. It's not like a fixed point. Um, and so you're not lost. You, you are just on the journey, uh, your own personal journey. And it's going to take a million turns left and right up and down. Um, but I think to embrace being lost is the first, um, I think you also learn who the the most important critical people to your life are. Um, you know, it's, it's in the times like that, you know, you're all out and about and like whatever, and you're very social that everybody's like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But it's like when shit really hits the fan and you, you know, you're down and out, who are the people that are calling and checking in on you? Um, so I think that's the second thing I learned, you know, from being lost. Um, number three, I guess just to again reiterate, like, it's okay. It, it is completely okay to not have it figured out, um, and to not scrutinize yourself or not hold, like compare yourself to anybody else. Um, because again, it, it's just the facade that everybody's portraying, whether it's like on LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever it is, we don't know what's actually going on underneath. So, um, to, you know, it is okay for you to, to not be okay. And to, um, and to just be, just be, I know that sounds Wonderful. weird cryptic well, for the third one, but no, it's, it's great. I would also add, yeah. uh, <laughs> You've you've also learned how to where to find the party. I would say if you're lost. <laughs> say it again. If you're lost, where to find the party? <laughs> oh yeah, where to find? That's the easiest button. Where where to find a good cocktail? <laughs> <laughs>
Awesome, man. Drew, well, thank you so much, dude, for getting on, sharing your thoughts. And I really think your your story and your message is going to have impact on people listening in a really positive way. So thank you. Well, thank you, Thomas. I, I love having uh, this morning with you. We should have these mornings more often. <laughs> we'll see you, <laughs> see you next Thursday. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the, the weekly, weekly show. <laughs> no, but this was awesome. So All thank right, you and what you're doing, Thomas. I love you, my friend. You are so important love, to me. I love you, brother. Yes. You matter. I'll talk to you very soon. Yeah. Okay. Cheers, bro. Have a great day.